Thank you for downloading this Brum Radio podcast. For more podcasts, visit brumradio.com. Welcome to the Art and Business of Music podcast hosted by me, Jimmy Davis, where we dig deep into what it means to be a creative and a professional in the business of music. I'm joined on this episode by Mobo award-winning and internationally acclaimed artist, Funky DL. How What's you doing, bro? What's up, bro? How you doing, man? You cool? Really well, thanks, man. Thank you for taking the time out to come on the show. Thanks for having me, man. We are, we're perched in uh, the HQ, the lab. I'm sitting here in, uh, in Funky DL's living room. And um, yeah, I'm very, very excited about, about getting into this, this episode. Uh, with someone who who has had an incredible career and so much experience and I'm sure knowledge to share. Let's start, shall we, DL, with you've just released your 20th studio album. Yep. That yep. is an incredible feat, man. Um, how has it landed and what was the process like? Do you know, it, it's, it's been a crazy journey from the beginning, you know, for me as an artist. And uh, to get to a 20th album is remarkable you know it's not something i ever planned like i'm gonna do 20 albums you know um but in doing this album i just decided i wanted to make it um obviously i was i was aware it would be the 20th album before i started it so i wanted to make it an album of celebration um and an album basically celebrating my creativity which is why it's probably the most diverse album i've made in that it you know kind of hobbles around all of these subgenres of hip hop. So we have kind of like a neo soul influence and R and B and there's trap on there and there's boom bap and there's boom bap that's kind of more laid back and there's boom bap that's a bit more rugged. I just wanted to kind of celebrate and showcase that I do it and I've done it all, you know. Um, so that's what the album Twenty really signifies, you know. Okay. And what was that process like in, in bringing together all of those different subgenres? and and influences it was it was at first it it was um it was difficult to see how the album was going to look uh or feel or sound as a whole you know when i started in the beginning i couldn't really see what it was going to be but i knew that i didn't want it to be what i've always done in the way that i've always done it um so the initial tracks were the kind of more laid back neo soul style hip-hop joints and they, they were without samples it was more like a live band um atmosphere and what for me was interested was that once once i had them done i realized that yeah the app the album's gonna have to form itself almost in sections so um so i'm gonna say that again the album's gonna have to form itself in sections and um you know so that you can kind of see the transition throughout the album of the different styles and so as i just started to think about it in that way then i just started to formulate and i, I realized i didn't want to have an album that was too long as well i mean i had people hit me up and like oh you're doing this album called 20 is it gonna have 20 tracks and i'm like no way <laughs> you know i don't think people's attention span um is what it used to be and so 20 tracks would be way too much so i, re I realized like maybe 12 around there is good and and try to transition the album through all of these styles throughout so um it started with the more laid-back stuff and then getting into a bit more the rugged stuff and the trap stuff a bit later down the line you you've involved quite a lot of artists on this project yeah co collaboratively but from a production standpoint did you bring people in to assist with that side of things or was it largely yourself that was concentrating on that so i mean i produced everything on the album however um like I said, for, for some of the stuff early on in the album, I worked with um, some live players. And so there's a guy named Zantane Black, um, who was a former keyboardist um, in Amy Winehouse's band, and, and a guy named Sean Allen, Ed Riches, which is a phenomenal guitarist. And, um, you know, it's literally me going into a room with those guys and saying, these are my ideas, and can you now translate them on your respective instruments? Um, and so, and I love that process. I absolutely love it. You know, as as a solo recording artist who produces his own music, there's sometimes a lot of isolation. And so to be able to get in a room 
with other creatives who are highly skilled and can understand and interpret your creative ideas it's like the most exciting i mean my train journey down to ealing to go to the studio to work with these guys it's just exciting for me mm. because you know my mind is 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 kind of filled with how is this going to come out you know what i mean it's just the excitement of it and so um in terms of the music that was the only kind of aspect where it included other people just translating and interpreting my ideas and often um contributing twists and uh, on the ideas I have or or newer ideas that I would say actually yeah I like that and really incorporate it and so um but I, I think the thing I learned from this whole album both with the live musicians and some of the rappers who featured and singers who featured on the album is that the collaborative um combination is so powerful it's just so powerful and it's something that I believe even myself I've overlooked but when you pull together these creatives who are extremely talented and you, you work and form a project like this, you know it wouldn't have been this great if it was just me. Mm. Okay, so we've touched on what's happening right here and now. Let's take it right back. Where did the musical journey start for you, DL? At what point in your life did you think, music's for me and I'm going to embark on this career path? I think it... I think what happened was there were a few points where things had happened that really stuck out to me as significant. So the very first time I was nine years old and I wrote a poem for Halloween and it rhymed. And what was funny was my then form tutor read it and he was so impressed that I remember he he let me have, he had this goodie bag, um, which he'd let kids dig into and take out a free prize, and mine was a pair of boxing gloves. And he took me um, for lunch outside of school. I don't even know if he's allowed to do that, but he took me outside of school for lunch, bought me a chocolate bar. He was just so impressed with me writing this poem at nine years old. And I remember how it felt to receive a prize for something that I had imagined up. Um, and that was like, okay, you have this ability to do something. Maybe I wasn't thinking about it that way, but looking back, it's like you have this ability to do something and you're being rewarded for it. By the time I was 11, um, you know, I was 11 in what year, 1988, about 12 years old, and I was just about to start secondary school. And this is when De La Soul and the Jungle Brothers and the Tribal Quest were emerging onto the scene. And when I heard... Um, the albums that they had, the respective albums that they were putting out, I just absolutely fell in love with the sound of it. I'd heard hip-hop before, KRS-One, Biz Marquee, Schoolie D, Special Ed. I'd heard all of these artists before, a little bit NWA, but it didn't really touch me. It intrigued me, but it didn't touch me as greatly as the sound that I heard from the whole Native Tongues, Tribe Called Quest De La Soul. And once I heard what they were doing musically, there was just something that grabbed me so much that I decided by the time I'd say I was 13 that that's what I want to do. Um, and then, again, coming back to school, when I started secondary school, my English teacher gave us a piece of work to do. Um, and I wrote my answers to this piece of work in rhyme form. And I asked my teacher if I could rap it to the class. And she said yes. And so someone made a little beat on the table and I'm there in, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a first year, year seven in secondary school and I'm rapping my English work to the class. And I remember um, when I finished, everyone cheered. And we hardly knew each other because we had just started secondary school. But there was this kind of praise and adulation for what I was able to do. And my English teacher took me up to the music department and said, this kid's got something special. And I... I'm really thankful for that because as we know, some teachers could be like, no, you can't wrap that to the class. Just do your work as I've asked you to. So I had a teacher who embraced um, my creative ability, you know, which was for me phenomenal because it then led to me meeting the teachers in the music department and doing things like keyboard lessons where they taught me Cubase, um, 
and you know four track recording which is the technology that was out at the time but even i didn't know anything about it so it really fascinated me that you could record something and then simultaneously record something else and then go back and record something else and multi-track and that was you know my my humble beginnings into it as a 12 13 year old into the ideology of studio recording so that's kind of how it it all started absolutely amazing man what's so interesting about that is that there was there was somebody in your life at that point who saw some potential and acted upon it yeah and gave you a platform or an opportunity or and would you echo that do you think that's really important for you know for people to see the ability in in others and to encourage them and yeah yeah i mean i think it can be life-changing it can be life-changing if if you if you're willing to just take the time and look at what's there or what's potentially there and try to nourish it and nurture it in anybody um it may not come to much in some cases but you know i'm sure my english teacher miss stoker wouldn't be aware that at this moment I'm mentioning something that happened back in 1989, mm. 1990, that was due to her um, her perception of what I was able to do as one of her students. So I think it's um, so powerful, the influence you can have by taking the time to support the potential of someone else. Absolutely. So from dabbling in Cubase and four-track recorders at that point, how does the journey start to progress then? And do you start to take music a lot more seriously and, and really just dive into that, that world? Yeah, I mean, you know, what's interesting is my mum was very strict when I was coming up. My mum had this whole philosophy of you come straight home after school. There is no messing about every day. It was almost, it felt almost kind of uh, like a regime, a military regime, <laughs> you know. And so, and and the consequences of disobeying my mom were were not good, like you know. So I remember being afraid to ask my mom if I could stay behind after school and do keyboard lessons, and thinking that she would say no. And she said yes, you know, um, and. For me, that changed my world because it allowed me access to explore my interests and explore my creativity. Again, if she had said no, we could be looking at a very different story for me. Do you know what I mean? But she said yes, and so um, I continued that journey doing keyboard lessons. But to be honest with you, it wasn't the playing of keys that I was that interested in. It was the sampling you know, it was... Because I used to play around, mess around on the Casio keyboards at school and I would instantly know that it doesn't sound like some of these records I'm hearing. So how are they getting it to sound like that? And actually, at that stage, I didn't know what a sampler was. What happened was my mum's younger brother, my uncle, was had a, he had an interest in music and he started to form his own recording studio at home. And I mean, you know, he had state-of-the-art gear and... At that time, people just didn't have studios in their house. So I was fortunate to gain access. And then I, I saw that he had an Akai S1100 sampler. And then I realized what it did. Like, you could take pieces of music from other places and then manipulate it. And so then having access to my uncle's studio, not for free, I had to pay just like everyone else. <laughs> and I had to find the money as a Mates teenager. Rights. Family rights. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was like 30, 40 quid a day, you know, at that time, mm. um, which isn't expensive now. But when you're a teenager that's not working, to try and come up with that money was difficult. But I was so focused that, you know, um, I would do it. And, and I'd go in the studio and I'd learn, again, uh, c-lab notator creator how to use the sampler so by the time i was 16 i just knew so much about you know adats and reel-to-reels i could you know hook up the two the half inch reel-to-reel and just work in the studio without my uncle being there you know he just used to let me in and away i'd go so you you've gone from being introduced to this world of like the studio i guess your uncle's studio yeah. immersing yourself in that and just diving right in 
So where where did it go from there? And what was what would you say was your first kind of big break in music? Your you know your first moment where you thought, okay, something might happen off the back of this. So it's the summer of 1994, and I'm 16 years old, and um, I've just left school, and I. Everyone in my class at school has applied to go to college and there weren't really many courses for... I wanted to rap, you know, and there weren't really courses for this. So the closest thing I could find was a sound engineering course, a YTS, Youth Training Scheme, mm-hmm. where you get paid 35 quid a week to turn up. And So I found a sound engineering course and when I applied... I remember going down for an interview and they asked me to wire um, just a regular UK plug socket. And I did that. Um, but they, they said, no, you didn't get in. Um, didn't get in. I think quite a lot of people applied. Mm. And I was devastated because I had no plan B. It was like, I'm going to do this sound engineering course. And then I didn't get on it. So fortunately, um, prior to that, in the summer, I was doing a. I just went on this YTS scheme to do printing, not because I was interested in printing, but because you get you get money for it, so yeah. it was something to do. Mm. Um, but then when September came around, I didn't get on the course. I, I didn't know what to do. Fortunately, though, about a couple of weeks into the course, someone had dropped out, and so they called and said, "You're in." So I've turned up there. And I'm involved in the course, but a lot of the time, my tutor, Simon, I remember him, Simon, would say to me, you can sit this one out because you already know how to... I knew how to do so much at that point. Okay. So, he and he was aware of what my ability was, um, so I'd get asked to sit out things quite a lot and let some of the other students learn. Eventually, I went on to a placement and it was a studio in Tottenham called uh, Bad Apple Studios. I think it's not there anymore. And I was told, you're going to be at, at your placement for maybe six months, but the first two to three months, you'll just be making tea and sweeping up. Um, and I was there for six months making tea and sweeping up. I didn't, you know, after two, three months, nothing changed. It was just I was the dog's body. And it was so frustrating because the owner would use me to, open up the studio so I'd, I'd have to arrive early and I'd have to stay late to lock up and just make the tea and coffee and sweep up all day and after six months I just had enough I had enough of not being given a shot by this time I'm 17 years old um, and so to answer your question my big break came when I was recording in my uncle's studio and I made this track called 1221 and I just finished it and, and recorded it on a cassette tape and sent it in to Choice FM, DJ279, Westwood, I think may have been a capital at the time, and Max and Dave, who were on Kiss FM. And um, Westwood I sent it to first, but he didn't play it. And actually, I had known Westwood a little bit longer because I'd met him at an event that I performed at when I was 14. So I sent it to him first, but he didn't play it. Um, Max and Dave, I'm not sure when they got it, but their show was on a Wednesday and I might have sent it out at the beginning of the week and they didn't hear it. But DJ 279 on Choice FM played the record, played this this cassette. And I was going bananas in my bedroom, you know. But then what was interesting is that the following week, Westwood started to play the same song. Max and Dave started to play the same song. So suddenly I'm on, you know, the three biggest radio stations in London for urban music. And then I, very shortly after, made a second demo and everyone was playing that. And suddenly I was in a position where this funky DL guy is what everyone's talking about, you know, on the airwaves and magazines were now interested in who I was and, and what I was doing and it just snowballed from there. So what's interesting, funny story, is when I was in Bad Apple Studios doing the tea, making the tea and sweeping up, I remember these rappers came in and they booked a session and they were there looping up their Diana Ross record. And, and I was sitting there watching them, making tea for them, wishing that I could be doing what they were doing. Within two years from that, I remember being in a club called The Borderline and seeing one of those rappers. I think his name was Remy. And he looked at me 
and he recognized me as Funky DL because by then I had won a mobile. And he was just puzzled at how does this guy who is making tea and coffee for us <laughs> <laughs> two years later is a mobile award-winning hip-hop artist. But I always knew where I was going to go. And and I knew that even if this, the studio I was doing my placement in wasn't going to give me a shot, this is what I'm built for. So to me, it wasn't a surprise that two years later, I'm in that spot. You had that vision and you manifested it yeah, quite yeah, clearly. definitely. And what was the UK hip-hop landscape like at that time? It was interesting because the landscape was exciting, but at the same time, disappointing. Mm. The reason why I say exciting is because you're young, you're a teenager, you want to rap, you're meeting new people, you're going new places, you're showcasing your skill, you're getting praise and you're getting, you know, um, people taking interest to a degree. But the reason why I also say disappointing as well is because there was this kind of feeling in the air that us as UK rappers were always second class to US rappers. You know, it was evident to us when we'd open magazines, when we'd listen to the radio, you know, there were these little segments on certain shows that were devoted to UK music. And outside of that, you wasn't going to get any airplay. So if you didn't hear yourself in this 25-minute slot in a three-hour show, your, your record wasn't going to get played. And... And even going to record stores, you know, and trying to sell your initial 12 inches, it was just like, we sell all of this US stuff. And so very early on, we understood that we weren't celebrated. We just weren't celebrated. It's nothing like what it is now. It was nothing like that. So it was exciting being a youngster coming into the game as a rapper, but also would make you feel despondent at times for where you could go. Mm. And was that really frustrating? Were you sort of looking at the scene thinking, how do we make this work? Did you start looking elsewhere and thinking, how can we perhaps branch out? Were you just like utterly determined to be heard and to be recognised? I think for me, I was, I was very... I think I had a, an element of negativity about the UK scene because I remember being at a show in Subterranea in 1992 and I was a youngster I was I hadn't even left school yet so I was all you know all the 14 years old around 14 15 and Moni Love was there and uh, she wasn't performing but she was there and I remember a DJ from Kiss FM called Fat Freddie M getting on the stage and saying that this is going to be the year that UK hip hop takes over this is 1992 Hmm. and even at that point i understood that uk hip-hop music wasn't at the top of the tree do you know what i mean so by the time i got to start to emerge on the rap scene late 95 96 one of mobile 97 this is five years later from me hearing fat freddie m say those words and seeing that there's not been much change and so by that time i'm just like will it ever Will it ever translate? And then I remember a good friend of mine saying, it's no hard and fast rule that what happens in America has to happen here. Because then you could apply that hard and fast rule to any territory. You know, the next thing you know, rap in Afghanistan is going to be the hugest thing. Do you know what I mean? You, You can't just say what works somewhere has to work somewhere else. And so I began to face the reality that maybe the UK was way behind where America was, I started to understand that demographically it was a different place. Um, And even if you look at, even if we was to shrink the USA in ratio down to the size of the UK, the results would still be way above, you know, um, in terms of record sales and so on and so forth. So it wasn't like I began to look elsewhere but by 1998, after releasing my first album, I felt like it was a hopeless fight in the UK. I was really quite... I would say that was the first year of my life where I, I felt somewhat depressed about the state of the music industry. So, fortunately for me, 
everything that started to happen for me in Japan in 1999, which obviously a year after 98, so there was something that then opened up and shifted my focus. Mm. What's so interesting is that the tables have pretty much completely shifted now and turned. Yeah. And just a couple of weeks ago, uh, albums by UK rap artists topped the UK album charts yeah. in positions number one and two yeah. for the first time in history. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think enough credit is given to the likes of yourself and some of the other guys who appeared on that project that you were part of, the London All-Stars project, yeah. you know, the likes of MCD, Skinny Man, Black Twang, Ty, all of those guys. And you'd certainly paved the way as far as I'm concerned. Um, what do you think has changed now? Like, you know, what what has allowed the UK to kind of dominate its own shores? And and it, was it just literally going to be a matter of time? I think I think fundamentally, and I could be wrong, but I think fundamentally, what has changed is access. You know, in in our day, it was it was gatekeepers. You know, <coughs> excuse me. In our day, it was gatekeepers. You, you, you kind of understood that there wasn't this direct-to-fan relationship, so you had to go through media, you had to go through publications, you had to go through radio to be heard, which meant that somebody had the power of yes over your career or the power of no. Obviously, now we live in an age where there, there is a direct-to-consumer relationship. You can start to build a hype, build a following, build a brand, without anybody having to give you permission to have access to the consumer fan base. I remember being a part of a webinar a couple of weeks ago and it was saying, if you look at the old model of an artist getting signed, it would be artist and then the artist has a re relationship with the record label. The record label then has a relationship with the media and then the media is the one that gets to the consumer. So that's four steps in the chain, you know. Artist makes the music, submits it to the record companies, record company takes the music, submits it to radio and, you know, TV and club DJs and so on and so forth. And then it gets to the consumer in that chain. Now that doesn't exist, or not, that's not the only way it exists now. Um, so I think that that's definitely helped for um, artists nowadays to um to have the success that they have um but it could be other factors in it you know just time if you look at even us hip-hop big daddy kane couldn't reach the height of drake at that time you know he was still a big big artist but in terms of the level of stardom the worldwide reach the global reach it wasn't the industry part of it wasn't um, as established when Big Daddy Kane was about, you know, hip hop became this thing that, as each year went by, it in terms of revenue and 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 its fiscal value, just grew and grew and grew. So the same can be said about here. You know, there was a time in in the mid to late nineties where UK hip hop just wasn't worth that much as a as an entity as a business, um, and now it's grown. What's interesting, though, is that I remember being really young and seeing rappers from the UK on top of the pops all the time. So it was almost like there was this peak and then this decline and then a peak again. You know, to see Moni Love on top of the pops, to see the Cookie Crew on top of the pops, to see Merlin on top of the pops and to see um, Derek B. And it was like... But by the time we got to the mid towards late 90s, it just didn't exist in that way anymore um it was all the boy bands and spice girls and do you know what i mean and so and that's why i say there could be multiple things that shift the climate for what can be successful and what can't yeah i'd, I'd certainly agree and perhaps even looking at other areas of popular culture that have penetrated the u.s mm. and started to influence them from these shores yeah. like film like fashion yeah you know all of those different areas i think like you said it all plays a part doesn't it so you've mentioned it already but let's take it back to when you picked up that mobo award in 97 for best hip-hop act how did that feel 
what was that experience like? It was it was really again it was one of those ones where it was kind of bittersweet. Um, sweet because of course it's fantastic to win an award for a best hip hop act, you know, when you're looking at all of your um, kind of contemporaries and and all your peers and knowing that you've been nominated and then elected as the the winner of such an award. But at the same time, if I'm honest, I felt that when I looked at the category I was in and the other artists who were in the category, I felt like... I just felt like that they, they hadn't done that much. You know, I didn't feel like I was up against a really competitive field. Okay. I felt like I had just done the most that year and... Some of the other people in the field in the same category, I haven't even heard of them. Do you know what I mean? Wow. So it just it didn't, and and that's not to slight them because just because I haven't heard of you doesn't mean you're you're not doing your thing and so on and so forth. But again, remember, I'm really young. I'm I'm 19 years old, and so my whole thing was just like okay. Um, and mobile wasn't this big thing until the following year. Mobile started in '96. Black Twang had won Best Hip Hop Act in '96, so we were aware of it, but it. And I'm not sure if it was televised that year. And if it was, it wasn't a big deal. And then 97 comes and I get nominated and, and I'm kind of thinking, okay, I might win, I might not. Um, and even when I win and it was televised, it still was in its, you know, it's in its second year. What really launched Mobile was Biggie died and Diddy did... I'll be missing you. And that was such a huge song. And Mobile secured him to perform that at their event. And so the following year, I was nominated, but I didn't win. That's when Mobile became a big deal. And I felt like I'd won it the year before. Year too early. Yeah, year too, year too early. Um, but it was still a, it was a great feeling. I mean, to step in a room where I'm like, there's Blackstreet and there's Mary J. Blige and there's Jamiroquai. And there's the brand new heavies. You know, I'd never been around that kind of royalty, music royalty before. And your award was presented by Missy Elliott. Yeah, Missy Elliott Chuck and, D, and Chuck it? D from Public Enemy. Yeah, so... You must have had stars in your eyes, man. Oh, yeah, up onto that stage. definitely, definitely. And, and I remember having a conversation with Chuck D. I oh, just a really short conversation afterwards and he congratulated me. And um, But again, I remember... I remember being at the ceremony and you know being this mobile award winner and nominee and the paparazzi being there and me walking around I remember even walking out or walking in it was one of the two and they just weren't interested in who I was I was a nobody to them but I remember Melinda Messenger being there and as soon as she walks past like Melinda 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 and I'm like this is a music of black origin award it wasn't about the music. Do you know what I mean? It was, yeah. Mm. And it was like, but I'm just, I feel like a nobody here, you know? Um, so there was something a bit off with being at that um, award ceremony. But at the same time, I think it was in later years that I became more grateful that I had that opportunity. I remember even my mobile award as well. This didn't help. My mobile award was made out of these two pieces of metal. And it broke the night that I won it. No you know, it way. just broke. It just fell apart. Do you know what I mean? And um, people, people ask me sometimes, you know, in, in subsequent years, people say to me, where's your mobile award? I threw it in the bin. Seriously? I did, yeah, I threw it in the bin. Wow. Because it was just these two cheap pieces of metal that broke on the night I won it. And I kept it for maybe about a year or two and then I just dashed it. <laughs> Wow, I love it. I love it. It's rock and roll, man. Yeah. I mean, if you'd have thrown it out the hotel window at someone and it had knocked them out, I would have loved it even more. But, oh, man. I mean, from there, your your career just seemed to just take on uh, an incredible tra trajectory. Mm. And in the subsequent years following that MOBO win, you, you supported, you know, the likes of The Roots, Eminem and Dr. Dre at Brixton Academy. Yeah. I mean, what what was that like, man? Because that that show in particular is seen as like legendary, mm. went down in history. Yeah, how did that feel to be opening up for 
such a prestigious act and, you know, two people that would be considered legends. It's funny because I had supported Eminem at Astoria twice before that event. Um, I think this was in 99. I did two shows at Astoria that Eminem was doing. The the Eminem and Dre at Brixton Academy was um, 2000. And I remember um, in the 99 shows, I had a friend who was from France. And he... um, when he met me, he didn't know I rapped. You know, he just met me and thought he was a cool guy and we became friends. So when I told him that I was this rapper and I was supporting Eminem, he thought, get out of here, you know. <laughs> so I remember going, I said, come, come with me. And we, we've gone to Astoria and we've gone inside. And then I've gotten, I've spoken to the engineer and I've gotten on the stage. And, but he really thinks that we've kind of snuck in there and we're not, we're not supposed to be there. So when he see me jump up on the stage to do the sound check, he's like, what, what are you doing? Come down, come down. And then he, and then he, obviously as the night kind of transcended, he, he realised, oh, this guy's for real. He's supporting Eminem. And, you know, and I let him go on stage and he rapped in French and let him have a spot on my on my show. And he was just blown away by that by that night. But to, to answer your question, yeah, um, that show in Brixton Academy um, was phenomenal. Uh, you know, to be in front of a, a sea of people, um, a very diverse audience, and to and to be performing on the stage with, with those greats was really great. But again, it, it sometimes it felt bittersweet because as much as I was an early artist still expanding my career, these were shows where we were getting offered fifty quid expenses. You know, it, it wasn't there wasn't any real value being put on us as performers to say. We're gonna pay you a fee for what you're doing. So, I supported the Roots for fifty quid. Do you know what I mean? The the Astoria shows was like a hundred quid expenses. The Brixton Academy about fifty quid, maybe a hundred. Nothing more than that. Um, How did the opportunities come about in the first place? I mean, were the promoters selling it to you as, look, this is an opportunity for you to to get gain some exposure, to perform in front of a really large crowd. To be honest, I can't even remember how the opportunity... I, I get the feeling that maybe DJ279, who's been a long champion f- for me, um, may have, you know, suggested... Because a lot of the promoters putting on shows at that time didn't have relationships with the artists. So it was DJs who were playing at the... At, we were booked for the event to play that would then recommend support acts. Um, so DJ279 probably was the one who put my name forward. I know he put me forward for um, the Choice FM 8th birthday bash in 1997. Or East, no, it was the Easter Bunny bash in 97 and Destiny's Child were headlining. And he put me forward for that and he said, D, this is the first time Choice FM have ever put a UK rapper on the bill. Wow. And we stole the show. It was me, Ty, uh, DJ Sticks, a rapper called Guile and DJ Paris. We absolutely stole the show that night because we did this whole battle you know, I, I wasn't comfortable with going on stage and just rapping my songs. And I remember saying to 279, the audience is more of an R&B-led audience. I just don't think they're going to feel it. And he's like, listen, no, just go on stage and, and rap the songs that Choice FM play. I'm like, they don't hardly play my songs. <laughs> so the audience are not really going to know. Um, you know, and it, and what was interesting was, I remember Kirk Anthony hosting the event and, and we are at the Hippodrome. And he gets on stage and he says, where's all my hip-hop massive? And the crowd goes, bananas. He goes, right, we're going to have a rapper come on stage. So everybody make some noise for Funky DL. And I remember standing there thinking, like, I could hear a pin drop. Because they don't know who I am. You know, so I get on the stage and I start rapping. And we've set up this kind of thing where this other rapper comes on and just in the middle of my rap interrupts me and just says, you know, he starts berating me and saying how terrible I am at rapping. And then the crowd are like, what? And this is all set up, yeah. do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But And so they're really intrigued to see what happens next. And so we we go into this battle and, I mean, we're just dropping bars. And it was so humorous. And we're making reference to Jerry Springer. And at one point we've got 3,000 people going, Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. <laughs> you know, and it was such a memorable night. So some of these shows, they are bittersweet because, because we, when I was performing with the DJs and the other rappers, it sometimes felt like we were nobodies that were given a shot, but 
we're all almost just there to fill a space. But at the same time, some of the most remarkable memories have come from doing those shows. So the the, the Eminem and Dre Brixton Academy phenomenal show, um, and the same with many of the others. Is there something in there in that story about being creative? when it comes to these kind of opportunities and perhaps not taking the conventional approach of, yeah, I'm just going to get on stage and spit my bars and... Yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? being creative, but also taking a risk because the yeah. battle might yeah. not have worked, Sure, you know, but I was willing to take that chance. I mean, you know, I understood that controversy is what gets people's attention. And so... And I, and I th also think what was interesting, because the other guy who I was battling was a white guy, rapper named Guile, and it was a predominantly black audience at his Choice FM um, gig. So what was interesting was that I started rapping. Guy was nowhere in sight. And then, you know, he comes out and he's wearing an Armani suit and he's got a cane. <laughs> you know, he's really slickly dressed. And then, and then he's like, I won't say the profanities, but he calls me out. The crowd are like, what's going on? Who is this guy? Do you know what I mean? Then he's like, DJ, Run the rhythm, and then the DJ drops um, Little Kim's "Crush on You" instrumental, which is kind of this big hip hop R and B anthem. The crowd go nuts. He starts rapping, and then they're just like, "Whoa, he's really good." So then, I'm when he finishes, I'm like, "Do you want me to battle him back?" And they're like, "Yeah!" And then we start going at each other. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so it was it was this thing where I was confident to a degree that it would entertain the audience, and it did. And I remember Ty saying to me, we came off stage and Ty goes to me, I have never seen a UK audience respond to a UK rapper in that way before. Wow. Yeah, it was phenomenal. I feel like at this point we should say rest in peace to Ty. Yeah. You know, um, very, very sad that he passed away not that long ago and the influence he had on the culture and the scene. And yeah. The, you know, the, U the UK hip hop industry if you like i think will will never be forgotten yeah i think ty um made a massive contribution to the rap game we didn't always see eye to eye for a lot of the time if i'm honest you know we we just didn't but that doesn't take away from what he meant to the culture um and you can see it you can see when he passed how people responded the murals you know in brixton and and i think I think that it is important. I, I actually was quite surprised because I kind of felt like when I saw him mentioned in so many kind of mainstream publications, but I was like, and I think Rodney P would attest to the same, but where were you when he was here releasing music? Do you know what I mean? And so, yeah. Um, but yeah, he he will be greatly missed by obviously the people close to him and that knew him and by the culture. Absolutely. So, so you, you and I know each other, DL, and what I'm about to say, I'm not trying to massage your ego in any way. I don't need to. But you are, honestly, one of the most hardworking, dedicated, prolific, consistent artists I think I've ever come across. Where does that hunger, drive, desire come from, considering the amount of time you've been doing this thing? It, I think... Um I think first of all, and I remember my school teacher saying this to me recently, I'm still in touch with one of my secondary school teachers. He said to me, when I first met you, and you was about 12, he said, I could see, unlike most students, that you'd already started your life journey at that age. And I think that's what it was. Like, by the time I was 13, Jimmy, I remember saying to myself, I want to find out how old A Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul were, when they released their first album. And I'm 13 years old, and then I find out they were all kind of 19, 20, and I made a promise. I said, by the time I'm 19, I'm gonna, I wanted to be just like them. So I'm gonna release my first album. My first album came out in the summer of 1997, and I was 19 years old. So I made that prediction six years earlier, you know, and um, for me, it was just that nothing meant anything to me other than music. It was just so, embedded in who I was and I think that's where it comes from it's just something that I clicked with at such a very young age and understood in that moment that this is who I am and this is what I want to do and I think the other thing that 
that has helped me to be as profound um, and consistent in what I do is the fact that music has meant that much to me from such an early age that I never allowed anything external to music stop my music. I just, it, I always just felt like no matter what's going on in the world or in my life, who cares about me, who doesn't care about me, what pain I'm going through, you know, what's going on around me, whatever I'm burdened with, whatever my financial situation is, I will pursue music. And so it just ended up being a case where I had no excuses. I wouldn't allow anything to be an excuse for why I didn't pursue this. It just wasn't going to happen with me, um, which I think some would say is maybe a rare trait to find in someone so young, but that's just how I was. I remember speaking to an 18-year-old rapper maybe about a year or so ago, and she was saying to me, I want to make music, but I'm also scared if, like, what if I make the effort and what if I don't make it? And all I said to her was, I can understand you having that feeling, but when I was your age, there was no, what if I don't make it? It didn't exist. It just didn't exist for me. So I think, to answer your question, it just comes from this innate desire of me finding my purpose at such a young age and understanding that nothing other than this matters as much as this. Simple as it as it is, really. So what, you know, and, and speaking as someone who is revered as an outstanding artist and producer, what is it for you that makes a great MC or artist within the world of hip-hop? What are the key components? I think... I think to what makes... For me, what makes a great MC is to be able to relate to the listener through your words, someone to listen to, to what you're saying and, and connect feel something um, to be able to show great use of vocabulary I think is is really important and and rhythm flow you know um, I think for me yeah it's your flow it's your vocabulary and it's your ability to connect I think if you can master those three things you're onto something you know um but then at the same time, it's it's weird because as I've gotten older, I've, I've begun to understand more and more that music, sometimes it's just vibe. It's a, it's, a, it's a vibration, it's an energy. You know, one of the artists I love listening to the most is D'Angelo. When D'Angelo's singing, half the time I don't know what he's saying. I have no idea. You know, because the way he utters the words, it's just like, like, you know, he's not enunciating very clearly. He's not pronouncing very clearly, but you listen to it and it's a vibe. And I love it. So, as I've gotten older, as much as I've realised that yeah, you, you've got to be skilled at rhythmically or with flow or vocabulary or, you know, the ability to connect. And maybe that's where the vibe comes in. It's maybe not just connecting lyrically, but to make something that the feeling of it connects with people. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there are... I'm so happy I came up in hip-hop in the time I did because I think the school of MCs in the 90s, when I, you know, I'm in, my, in the peak of my youth and I'm this teenage guy going into my 20s and you've got Prodigy from Mob Deep and Nas comes out and Wu-Tang and... You've got Tribe and Biggie comes out and Tupac is out and these guys are all at the peak. And, you know, it's just like, even back then, it was just like, whoa, this is the plethora of imaginative, creative and often introspective lyricism was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. You know, and that's to take nothing away from what came in the 2000s. When when we started to get into the 2000s, it was like, I wasn't so much of a fan of DMX and, you know, Ja Rule. And, mm. 
all of these guys, you know. Even when Eminem came out, I, I, I was like, wow. I never liked Eminem's music. I never liked the songs. I recognised that he was phenomenal as a lyricist. But what was happening musically, it was all a bit too dark and a bit sombre for me, a bit melancholy, a lot of it, or too edgy. And But I, I understood that, yeah, what he's doing lyrically is, is amazing. But I think that's where I always more tapped into vibe, you know, more just the, the vibe and the energy. And that's why groups like Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul worked for me, because it wasn't the flabbergasted lyricism about them. It was just the energy. Is the chemistry, you know, Q-Tip and Fife on a track together on, on a Tribe Called Quest album always just had a feeling that when Q-Tip went and did his solo album and Fife did his solo album, it's like, they're good. But it's not a Tribe Called Quest. The chemistry of the two just created a vibe. So for me, I've learned with music that there's almost something that is hard to put into words that is an element that, if included, can change the dynamics of um, the success of an artist. Yeah. So I'm interested to ask you this question, DL. It's a bit of a random one, but I'm going to throw it in there anyway. What's the one decision you've made in your career that's had the biggest impact, would you say? That's an easy one to answer. It's to retain ownership of my catalogue. 100%. To retain ownership of my catalogue has meant that I've been able to survive um, financially. I've been able to have the, 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 the optimum amount of control over my music, what happens with it, who utilises it, in what way, for how long, in what territory. I think ownership of my music is fundamentally, um, and it's not a deli- it wasn't a deliberate decision. You know, when I got signed, I got signed to a, a, quite a big label called Almo Sounds back in '97, and Almo Sounds was independent label, but with major label money, um, and they were also backed with Rondor Publishing. I had a publishing deal. And Rondor, I mean, I think they had publishing from Tina Turner and Dire Straits and, you know, Bob Marley and all these massive, Sam Cooke and all these guys. So, but I think um, when I came out of that deal, very uniquely, they allowed me to walk with the Masters which is kind of unheard of, do you know what I mean? But they allowed me to walk with the masters and go and release my album with another label. And then coming out of that, it was a very small independent label, and coming out of that deal, I walked again with my masters, so I owned the rights to my first album all the way up to my 20th album and all the instrumental albums and remix albums and compilation albums. And I started to do licensing deals in Japan where I would license, a lot of people don't know the the meaning of licensing deals, it just means that I give a company in another territory, so for example Japan, a license to exploit that music, meaning they can press up CDs and package it how we agree and sell it in that territory and only in that territory or whatever agreed territories for a certain period of time while it's under license to them. And when that certain period of time expires, the rights revert back to me and I can then go to a different company in that territory and license that same music back to them. So a licensing deal is really saying that another label doesn't really have the rights to you as an artist, like a record deal where they're signing you. They're not signing you, they're signing a specific product for a specific period of time. And so me having and retaining my ownership meant that I could do all kind of deals and bring in an income. And then, of course, going into the digital world, um, retaining ownership to all the masters has meant that 100% of the revenue after the aggregators comes directly back to me. Best decision could have ever made. 20 albums deep of a really distinguished career so much experience and 
you know, different things that you've done, achieved, accolades. I want to hear some career highlights, man. What are the things that really stand out across that period? I think my experiences um, in Japan, probably some of the biggest highlights, you know, doing some of the tours. I remember doing an 11 city tour of Japan in 2002 and um, being able to travel all across Japan to the point where I've probably been to more places in Japan than the average Japanese person. Do you know what I mean? And it, and it's like, you know, going to places like Utsunomiya, Mito, Gifu, Osaka, Hamamatsu, Wakayama. Just going to all of these towns, never, never having heard of them before. And then going to experience the culture. And so a lot of the towns have different cultures, different energies with the audiences. And then standing on stage with these audiences all over Japan and them embrace me like I'm a superstar you know definitely some career highlights there um even just little things like going to New York you know I've never done much in America but I remember going to New York and Bobito from Stretch and Bobito used to have the number one hip-hop show on, on Hot 97 invited me to his radio show it wasn't Hot 97 he was doing a college radio at the time but I've gone up there and I'm this rapper from the UK and, you know, he's heard one song of mine, but he really liked it. I mean, this is the guy who, you know, with Stretch Armstrong, had the show where Nas first makes his debut and Biggie first makes his freestyle debut on Hot 97 and Bobito is giving me a shot to come up to his radio station and when I get on there, I'm with Easy Moby and India Davenport, who did many tracks with um, Brand New Heavies, and the three of us, just three of us up there, and I'm freestyling, wow. and Easy Mo B beats are playing, and it's just like being able to sit in Kiss FM with um, in London with um, Pete Rock and have the influence live band playing, and me and Pete Rock and Dynamite MC are freestyling together, you know? Yeah, and then meeting Nas, you know, um, twice up, once up at Kiss FM, um, and just me and Nas in the green room together, um, and then meeting him up at Choice Affair, and he recognizes me from two days ago, and says, "Come on the mic and freestyle." And then he he hears me rap, and then he comes up to me afterwards, and he, I kind of felt singled out. And he says, "Did you write those lyrics yourself?" And I'm like, "Yeah." He's like, "That was dope." <laughs> but this, you know, this is Nas. Wow. Do you know what I mean? So. Um, yeah, many career highlights, some that have included um, those moments where you kind of recognise, you know, Jill Scott reached out to me last year and said that she's a massive fan of what I do. Again, massive highlight. But the highlights are not just built on celebrity, like I said, you know, going to Japan. And even doing the 20 album and being able to offer the opportunity to some of the people who are featured on the album and to see the delight that they get from people responding to their skill and ability has been a career highlight for me, you know, to be able to give some of what I've received to someone just coming up on their journey and, and to show them that it's all for the taking, you know. So, yeah, so many highlights, man. Probably missed out a lot, you know what I mean? <laughs> but so many. Funky DL, can I just say, it's been an immense pleasure. Thank you for welcoming me into your home. And thanks for taking the time to come on the show, man. Oh, thank you for having me on the show, man. I just want to say, yeah, I'm really grateful. I don't really do that many interviews, but this one has definitely been worthwhile and um, some great questions to, to have answered so thank you back again it's funky on the track again and everything is smooth right from the music to the packaging I never run short like Park Ave to Madison I've been around the block from night like this was Gladys in the pips on a midnight train going from coast to coast arriving at a place where I ain't falling for no okie dokes from these Pinocchios who smoking more than smoky smokes asking if we puff puff give of course you know we don't I got that legal mind the hardest worker run up or DL the wrong way I might murk yeah. Put you back in the box, 
double tape and return ya Trying to compare me with some dude I never heard of It's murder, murder, No wonder why they keep turning round Clutching their purse up a threat but with no aggression Cause I'm bad like MJ, 1987 Everybody listen up, I got something to tell you There's many things I try to do, some of them fell through But when it comes to making these rhythms and these tunes Nobody seem to do it in the way that I do Everybody listen up, I got something to tell you This a thriller, this a drama, this is killing them with karma, this is playing every city from Chicago to Jakarta. This is... Thank you for listening to this Brum Radio podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us on your podcast app.